Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. And welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, man, do I have a fascinating story for you. It's the story about an author named Julie Ryan McHugh, who, along with her identical twin sister, was given up for adoption as a baby. Now, due to a health scare a few years back, she needed to track down her birth parents to get a complete family history. And her book, Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging chronicles that journey. But uh, that's her story to tell. And I'm going to let you hear from Julie in a moment. But my chat with her did remind me of a story from my own childhood. Now, uh, as you dedicated listeners know, I have a twin brother named Jimmy. You've heard his story before. Uh, So I've got my twin, Jimmy, uh, my older sister, Mia. And we have an older brother named Greg. And when I was about 13 years old, I found out, big family secret, I found out that my brother Greg was adopted. Now, all of my other siblings knew, except for me. And I'm not really sure why, you know, Michael was kept in the dark, but that uh, that was the case. And it all came to, to, to a head. One day I was sitting in my grandmother's family room at her apartment in Pompano Beach And uh, some friends of the family were over, including Auntie Joan. Now, Auntie Joan, uh, not not a real aunt, no blood relation, but very close friend of the family, uh, escaped Germany during uh, World War II. So she had a a thick German accent. And um, out of the blue, one day, Auntie Joan looks at me and says, you know what, Michael, you're very special. Now, I, I decided not to try and do a German accent there because I would butcher it. Uh, but she says you're very special. Now, I, I at 13 did not have what you would call a, a very uh, high sense of self-esteem. So I'm like, uh, why'd you say that, Auntie Joan? And she's like, well, because you're the firstborn male in your family. Now, now, first of all, this let's understand the time period here. This is probably back in the 80s. Uh, Auntie Joan, you know, God bless her, uh, was probably born in the in the 19. 19- Oh, some things are the 1910s. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, this idea of being the firstborn male is kind of an outdated notion. You know, we we weren't part of the feudal system. I didn't I'm not in line to inherit a whole bunch of land from my from my parents because I'm the firstborn male. You know, I'm not in line to be king of the Carlin family. But that's what she said. You're the firstborn male. And I'm like uh, confused because I, I knew Auntie Joan knew about Greg. 
I mean, <laughs> uh, of course she knew about Greg. You know, it, it's he wasn't exactly Mr. Zolschel back then, but but she knew that my parents had four kids. One of them was Greg, and he was nine years older than me. So um, after that, she just let it drop. And she just like, I guess a light bulb went off in her head like, oh, oh shit, this guy doesn't know. Um, and I didn't think anything more of it. You know, I thought she was just, you know, a little kooky. You know, I thought maybe she had some like trauma in her past from from living in Germany back in back in those days. Um, so, you know, I let it go. But uh, someone didn't let it go. You know, so she must have told my mother uh, about this awkward moment that happened. And that night, you know, my mom and dad and, and Jimmy and me were driving somewhere. Actually, we, I, I know exactly where we're driving. We're driving to Alex Rakowski's house. Now, Alex Rakowski was a kid that we grew up with in Florida. By this time, we had been living in Connecticut for years. And, you know, I was doubtful that this kid remembered us. We remembered him because my my brother Jimmy was good friends with him. And he, he sang this stupid song about Alex Rakowski. I used to go... Alex Rakowski, do, 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 do. And I have no idea where that came from, but we were going to see Alex Rakowski and his family. I guess my dad worked with his dad at, at American Express. So whatever, you don't need to know that. But that's where we were going. Um, and my mother turns to us as my father's driving and and says, you know, there's something we need to tell you. You know, dad and I had a hard time starting a family. So we adopted Gregory as a baby. And Jimmy's like, mom, I already knew that. I, I'm like, Jim, how the hell did you know that? And he's like, well, because Mia told me. Like, OK, well, Jim knows. Mia knows. Michael doesn't know. OK, fine. Um, so now everybody knew. And it was awkward. You know, it was kind of an awkward moment. You know, everybody knew but me. And, you know, it, it didn't really impact me, like knowing that Greg was adopted. You know, I didn't view him any differently. You know, if anything, it helped me understand you know, the mystery behind his blue eyes, you know, neither of my parents had blue eyes. And I know that, yeah, two people with brown eyes can pass. You have a, a blue eyed child by passing down a recessive gene. But you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, nobody in my family, uh, cousins, grandparents, aunts, uncles, none of them, none of them had blue eyes. But Gregory had the blue daggers. And, um, you know, I knew I knew enough about biology at that point to know that that was a little different. But it, so it made sense. OK, Greg's adopted. Fine. Again, it didn't change how I thought about him. He was still my idol. You know, I wanted to be Greg back in those days. Still kind of do, maybe. Um, part of it was he had great hair. I mean, great hair. You know, it's totally gray now. I mean, it's not even salt and pepper. It's gray. He is a gray haired man. But uh, it's still a damn fine head of gray hair, I must say. And when I was talking with Julie in our interview, you know, she used a term that really, really kind of slapped me in the face a bit. And that term was rejection. She said that she was hesitant at first to search for her birth parents because she felt a sense of rejection from them. And that word rejection stayed with me. You know, it got me to wonder you know, how strong of a sense of rejection my, my brother Greg had felt or must have felt from his birth parents and, and how that sense of rejection maybe manifested itself in his own childhood and in those tough teenage years. And even now as an adult, you know, it got me to think about that. I'm thinking about it right now as I free associate this, <laughs> you know, Greg and I, uh, we only became close in my later teen years, you know, up until then, you know, Greg was kind of a loner. 
it was a loner of the family, you know, growing up in his room, it was on the other side of, of the house from the rest of us. He rarely ate dinner with us. And I distinctly remember him whenever we'd have pizza, he'd take two slices of pizza, a plate, go right into his room, sit in front of his TV and watch it. A little desk TV. This is kind of back in the early 80s. Very tiny TV. But he had one. That was neat. Um, But that's what he would do. He would, you know, he would he would kind of be alone a bit. And I remember him, you know, arguing with my dad. They would butt heads a lot. I also remember him being kind of quiet. Um. And it really wasn't until after he graduated college and wound up moving back to Florida uh, for work that that I got to know him at all. You know, he was always this mystery guy. But but, you know, when we'd visit, we'd go down. He, he actually wound up living with my grandmother um, while he was working for American Express down in, in Florida. And he would you know, he would he would um, you know take me and Jimmy to the movies. He actually taught us a very invaluable skill, which is how to sneak alcohol into a movie theater. And the key, if you're wondering, is using a Ziploc bag. But that's a story for another time. I'll tell you the story about how we saw Hook with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman uh, and and uh, Julie Roberts um, completely completely off our rockers because Greg <laughs> smuggled in some. I think it was like banana flavored rum. But um, but so we got to know him a little bit then. But but I really only got to know him after he opened up his wine store. So he he wound up leaving that job at American Express and he moved back north. He followed his dream to open up a wine store. He always wanted to be in the wine business. That's what he did. And I wound up working for him, you know, during the summers from, from college and, and, you know, winters, Christmas and all that. And we, we became very close, uh, Greg and I, and it was funny, funny, kind of ironic, I guess, you know, customers would come in and say how much we look like each other. And it's, it's funny, you know, obviously we're not blood related, but, um, the guy who I should resemble, my twin brother, he and I look nothing alike. But Greg and I, um, yeah, we don't just look alike. We have we have many of the same mannerisms. And it's probably me trying to um, be him in 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 some way. I should probably analyze that a little bit. Like, why do I want to be like my older brother? Um, but anyways, I, as I wrap up this intro, and I know it's going on long, but as I wrap up, you know, I'll admit that going into this episode. I thought my chat with Julie was, you know, just going to give me a really powerful story to share with all of you. And it has. It certainly has. But but it's it's also given me something more, something much more. It's given me a newfound appreciation for all that my brother Greg has gone through in his life. You know, it's given me a different lens to see his world through. And for that, I am very grateful. So without further interruption, here's my chat with author Julie Ryan McHugh. I thought I was fraternal, and then all of a sudden the DNA test came back. So big surprise. Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. But um, well, thank you for taking the time to join me. Uh, we'll 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 kind of dig right in because um, I am very curious to know about your story and um, kind of what prompted you to write this memoir. But um, first, let's just get to know each other a little bit better. So tell me, where are you sitting right now? Like, where ge geographically are you? I'm sitting in Sarasota, Florida. I have a daughter and son-in-law and two grandsons that live here. So I started, my husband and I came started coming down here about three, four years ago. And um, 
when you compare that to Michigan City, Indiana and Chicago, it wasn't a hard call. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm actually from Florida. I was born in a town called Plantation. And, um, you know, I, I now now I live in Connecticut, but I, I've been all over the uh, I, I travel all over the place because I, I actually interview people for a living. And, and you know, pre-COVID, I used to do do all this kind of work in person. And um, mm. so I've been to Michigan and I've been to Indiana and I've been to both places in the winter. And uh, you, I think you're in the right spot right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially this week anyway. Um, Chicago really got hit hard with some snow. So, yeah. Uh, the only thing about living in Florida is you get a lot of visitors. And uh, that means you have to be very protective with your with your time. Yeah. And if you're a budding author and uh, trying to launch a book, you've got to uh, be a little selfish. You do. Yeah, you definitely have to be a little. Well, let, let's talk about that. So when when did did you get bit by the writing bug? I mean, I, I assume it was before you you started writing this memoir. I've always done uh, writing, but not professionally and kept a lot of journals going through um, adolescence and which I actually tapped into when I was writing this book. Um, did a lot of writing in college at a professor that said, you know, you've got to change majors. You need to be a, an English major. And um, but I she didn't convince me. I ended up finishing my psych degree and then uh, went to business school and uh, have an MBA. So the what? marketing part that I that I got in graduate school is really coming in useful <laughs> as, a, as a writer. What, what do you think drove you to psychology? I was a psychology major, too. Um, so okay. I'm just curious, what, what, uh, what drove you to that? Well, like every big Irish Catholic family, there was a lot of dysfunction in our family. And I think trying to understand them and myself being a twin and also being adopted, psychology was like, yeah, I have to understand this better. I want to understand personalities and family dynamics. I also had a sister, a younger sister, um, not a biological sister, but um, who passed away when I was a teenager and our family got um, messed up there for a while. So that drove me to study psychology. Was there a particular sub subfield of psychology that you were more interested in than, than the others? The personality piece of it. Yeah. I, I went to rat lab. Did, did you have a rat lab that you had to study uh, bar pressing and all of that? We definitely had labs that involved uh, mice. Um, but I, I don't remember. I mean, I remember in, in learning and cognition, maybe doing some work with uh, with with animals. But I, I don't remember that in personality. Um, but I do remember, I'll tell you, one of my favorite professors who I wound up doing my undergraduate research with was my uh, Psych 243 professor who was every Becker Lawson and she, she was my personality, um, professor. And, cool. uh, uh, well, one of the cool here. things that happened to my sister and I, when we were at Indiana was, uh, we participated in Dr. Rose's twin studies program. And, um, we did personality inventories, physical testing, uh, questionnaires. They observed us and what was fascinating, after four years of being involved in this program, they gave us this big, long report. And at the end, the researcher said, everything points to the fact that the two of you could be considered identical twins. And the um, 
the sisters at the orphanage that uh, where my parents adopted us from had told them that we were fraternal. So it left a lot of questions open. And once DNA, um, you know, was really reliable, we were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's let's see where this goes. And uh, so that was one of the one of the big surprises in the adoption search, but also another surprise in the book that I share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to give too too much away about uh, about the book because I'm sure you want you want to keep some things a secret. But, yeah. But well, you look at the cover of the book, and it's not too hard to see these girls are not fraternal. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, you know, start me, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, your your drive to write this book and, and the backstory there. Um, so I know, I know, it starts with a health scare. Yeah, it starts with a health scare. Um, and I kept running into all these roadblocks. My sister's supporting me. Uh, my mom and dad are a little maybe yes, maybe no. And all these roadblocks were um, coming up. And we just kept trying one thing after another. DNA analysis was not that reliable. We didn't get a lot of hits um, on the reports. Plus, we didn't know our birth parents' names. So we, it was impossible to figure out what direction. And we ended up um, using a whole slew of people to, to figure it out. Um, a judge, an adoption agency, we had a social worker uh, researching. And it just took so many ups and downs that people would say, you, you've got to write this. This is ridiculous. And then um, there's some surprises that uh, happen towards the end of the book that uh, I realized I, I have to keep putting this on paper and um, put it out there. So the big decision was, do I write this as a novel? and protect everybody's identities and protect pieces of the story? Or do I write this as memoir? And I was heavily involved with a post-adoption support group at Catholic Charities at the time. And that's a very painful process to sit through. Those sessions were exhausting. And I thought, you know, I really owe this to my cohort to put this story out the way it unfolded, not make it fiction. Um, there was a lot of things I didn't put in the book that I tried to protect people's privacy, uh, changed a couple of names, and I felt like I needed to tell the story the way it unfolded and uh, put it out there as an adoptee's search for truth. When, when did you learn that you were adopted? Is it something that you always knew from, from the time you were very little or was it a secret or t tell me a little bit about that? Um, that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot. And to be honest with you, uh, I do a lot of soul searching about it. I always knew my, my parents must have told us really young. Uh, I can see that they probably sat both of us down and read us a book or something. Um, they were uh, really good parents. And so we always knew it wasn't a surprise. And every so often they would do a little checking in. We all go into the living room after dinner and they'd say, you know, if you really want to look for your uh birth parents or parts of your story will help you whenever, you know, you choose to do that. So I felt very supported and um, it wasn't a surprise. Plus, as you know, because you're a twin, 
I had my sister. So like the whole idea of searching for all these people that put me into a different family, I was like, mm, I had that rejection already. I think I'll stick with this family. They're awesome. And um, my sister and I are the bestest of friends. Yeah. And um, that's part of the story is is having that support system built in to a really complicated process. You you just used the term rejection there, and and I want to yeah. I want to dig into that a little bit if you're comfortable doing so. Sure. Um, when, when did that word, with, with regards to your you know family situation, when did that word enter your mind that that you you felt rejected? Um, I think I always wondered, uh, and I, that wonder wasn't, I didn't call it rejection, but you know, you're laying in bed at night and you're thinking about things and it's like, you know, why, why were we not kept with our first family? Why, why were we placed for a job? So there is rejection in that. Um, I think when I really started researching it, I realized, wow, there, there's more to this, um, trauma. It's, it's, you know, experts call it adoption trauma, this loss of your identity, uh, from your, uh, your family of origin. And in the case of closed adoption, which was very popular all the way up until the 1980s, there was no exchange of information. M- my, um, parents were told we were fraternal twins and that was about it. So that, um, that piece of it was, I think part of the rejection that the, that the state, the state of Illinois and the court system wouldn't allow us to find anything out. And then when the laws changed, I started on the path of, of, of looking and researching and there was, there was rejection in that process. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give away the pieces of the book, but, um, to be placed for adoption is a big question is why was it because there were two of us too many two kids to raise or is it was it because of some other reason um, as a kid you think about well it must be something I did or something about me and then as adult you realize well it's about them certainly it was their situation that caused this to happen and uh, then you want to know why what was the situation? And um, I learned all of that. Yeah. So um, I'll share with you my my older brother, Greg, there, there's nine years difference between uh, me and my twin brother and my and our older brother. He was adopted. Um, so my parents had a hard time conceiving. And I mean, gosh, he's I'm 46. So he's 50. Five. I had to do that math. I carry the two. No, uh, <laughs> math is not my strong suit. But um, he uh, and I. But that, it was a family secret for us. Like I didn't know. Um, Did he know? He knew. My mother told him from the time he was a baby. Um, over the time he could understand anyway. I, I, you know, I know she had a book that she kind of walked him through. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're same situation. So, uh, Catholic family, uh, Italian, the, the old Italian Irish combo plate. And, um, but I didn't know my, now I have an older sister. She's seven years, our, our senior, she knew, and it turned out my twin brother knew, and I was the one who was kind of, I was kept in the dark. And one day we were down in, in Florida visiting my grandmother 
and we had some friends of the family over and and Auntie Joan, who wasn't an aunt, but, you know, close enough. Mm -hmm. um, she said, Calabash you know, relative. Exactly. <laughs> she said, you know, Michael, you're very special. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't feel special. <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, you know, you're the firstborn son. And in our twin group, I was born before my brother, which is something I have held over his head his entire life. Me too. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> that one minute, those 60 seconds, huge. Yeah. Um, and I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, you're the firstborn male. I'm like, no, Greg was the firstborn male. And then like a light bulb went off in her head saying, oh, he doesn't know. So then she must have let it slip to my mother that we had this conversation. And um, uh, in the car, we were going to uh, we were going in the car somewhere. And my mother said, hey, you know, there's something I have to tell you. I think I was 13 years old at the time. I said, what? Wow. She's, she's like, well, you know, your brother Greg uh, was adopted. And I look over at my brother, Jim, my, my twin. <laughs> I'm like, did you know this? He's like, yeah, I knew. I'm like, am I the only one who didn't know this? Like, I don't know why. And Greg, Greg and I have been, I mean, in many, in many ways, he and I are closer than my twin brother and I, you know, it, it, that's just the way things kind of worked out as we grew up. But um, it was interesting. It was interesting that it was a secret. Was it a secret? I know you mentioned having a sister who has since passed, but was, was it a family secret at all for you guys or was it? Always no, no, but I think the birth order has a lot to do with it. So like your parents, mine had trouble having a family. Um, they adopted my sister and I, and then two years later, they adopted again through Catholic charities, um, my brother. And then all of a sudden the floodgates opened and they had had three more kids wow. um, and a couple miscarriages thrown in there. So it was never a secret. Um, but, you know, when you have two older sisters who are very bossy, we were like a wall. There there was no messing around with us um, or no teasing anyway. And uh, certainly with my brother that was two years younger, he was kind of a tough guy. So uh, the younger kids looked up to us and um, yeah. There was no messing around with the older sisters. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, did once you and again, I and don't don't give away anything in the book because I, I okay I want to read it. But once you you know, I assume you did wind up tracking down your your birth parents. Um, I, I'm just curious if you're comfortable sharing what that initial you know feeling was like. Um, again, I, I know that there's a story behind how you, how you did it and how you tracked them down, which I don't want to give away, but I, if you could paint a picture of what that first interaction was like, I'd love to hear it. Um, well, finding my birth mother had its own little uh, life cycle, but the day that we actually met her is, was much like that anticipation on Christmas morning where you know the gifts are right, they're right down there. And you're so excited to go down the stairs and see what Santa left under the tree that you you just, you're beside yourself. And that was what it was like. It was a um, five decade wondering and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then there it was, and it was, um, you know, everything you wanted it to be. It's like Santa left everything under the tree. Um, so it was spectacular. And we are still very connected, which is great. 
um, one of those adoption reunion stories with happy endings for the most part, which um, is another reason why I wanted to write the story was so many stories don't turn out well. And mine certainly had a couple of hiccups that I would love to go back and uh, fix, but not not to be the case. Um, but it's, so it's a good story. It's a happy story. How, if at all, did it change your impact, the relationship you have with your adopted family, your adopted parents and, and even siblings? Did, did, did you find that the relationship changed at all? Was it compromised or strengthened? Or I'm just really curious about that. Uh, I go through a lot of things with my adoptive mom in the course of the book. And um, we weathered through them as best as we could um, with the foundation of love. I mean, I I love my parents and um, I'll get a little emotional here, but we weathered through that whole scenario because we had a good foundation. And um, we talk about my book and there's some scenes in the book that maybe she would prefer that were not in there. But um, as she said to me, um, you told the story you wanted to tell. Yeah. And, and I'm proud of you. So uh, we're good. We're all good. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, so talk to me about the, the, the writing process, because a lot of the listeners of, of this particular show are, are authors. I mean, I, I profile authors on the show and, uh, many are aspiring authors. They want to learn about the writing process, the publishing process, um, you know, helpful hints in terms of marketing and, and all, all, all the real hard work when it comes to, uh, getting a book out there. I always think that writing is sometimes the easy part and it's everything else that's, that's challenging. But, um, well, what, what was your kind of writing journey here? Um, in terms of once you started, um, what, what was the process like for you, Julie? Well, um, that because it was before COVID, when I started my process, I was taking in-person classes at University of Chicago. Um, my family is all over the place, so I was doing a lot of traveling. And then I started looking for online classes to do. And I came across uh, Brooke Warner, who is the um, publisher. She writes press. And Linda Joy Myers, who's the president of the National Association of Memoir Writers, and they have a wonderful class called Write Your Memoir in Six Months. Um, I took it twice to finish my book and developed a really great relationship with Brooke Warner and decided, you know, I'm in a hurry to get this out. I'm an older writer. Um, I, I, did, I tried query letter for an agent. It didn't go well. And I knew Brooke. So I just said, you know what? I love this hybrid publishing model. Um, you have control over your book cover, the title, the publicity. Um, it comes at a cost, but you're handheld and you have a cohort of authors that you sort of, it's like a graduating class. You go through the process with 40 other writers each season. And so I went down that route and I could not be happier. It's been a great experience. I'm, I love the book cover. Um, and I love the title. Um, and I've got some really great friends and everything's virtual right now, which is kind of a bummer when you want to do a, a book signing or something like that. But eventually, you know, maybe by next summer we'll be able to do that. Yeah. So I highly recommend people 
investigating everything that um, appeals to them, and then you can make a informed decision. I didn't want to self-publish. That seemed like way too much work. I was too much of a newbie. And I also didn't want to wait forever and a day for traditional publishing. So um, one of the choices I did make, too, after I signed up with She Writes Press was to do the audiobook right away. So the audiobook will come out um, next spring at the same time as the paper book. And, and that was a whole nother decision. You know, do you read it yourself because it's a memoir or you hire talent? And I just didn't think people would appreciate my Midwest accent. <laughs> so I ended up hiring an actress and she does a great job with all the voices in the book. And um when it when we had to proof it, my husband and I were driving down from Chicago to Florida and we listened to it through the drive. And he hadn't read the, the whole book. He had, he'd read chapters that I'd given him and he had tears in his eyes. So she's just so good. This is such yeah. a good book. So um, a lot of decisions for authors to make one one step at a time. And um there's so many great classes to take, memoir classes in particular that people can sign up for. Yeah, that that um, uh, <laughs> I, I've tried doing an audiobook um, for for some of my work, and after the second chapter, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I need a I need a quieter studio. I need uh, I need a producer. I need uh, I need a lot, and just just the editing alone. So I think the the decision to to hire an, an actress. Um, is a, is a smart one. Um, I wound up hiring an, a, a voice actor for uh, one of my books, and it's it, he nailed it so well. Um, like he really did such a great job with it. I, uh, I there's no way I could have done it better. So I will continue yeah. to to do yeah. that. Um, what? Um, so so I, you went you went hybrid uh, a hybrid approach. Um, what um, what did you learn, if anything, about yourself during during this process? I mean, obviously, it's a memoir, so you uncovered a lot. I'm sure you uncovered a lot about you know yourself and your family. But what what are some of the bigger takeaways you um, you have about yourself just from this process? You know, uh, the first realization I had when I was writing the book um, and editing it with um, my editor was the resilience. Um, I, I didn't realize that I was somebody that could get slapped on both cheeks and fall down and get back up again. Maybe that was what my upbringing brought, taught me was just get back out there. Um, but certainly I fell back onto that quality as I was going through the adoption search and reunion. And then also writing it was like, okay, this chapter's not working, throw it away just start over. Um, the other thing that happened as a course of writing the book was realizing that I had this immense capacity to accept a situation that wasn't great and, and forgive, you know, people that, um, didn't come through for me or didn't do what I expected them to do. So, um, those realizations come out in the book, I hope. 
Yeah. 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 No, no doubt. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's next for you? I, I think you mentioned having a novel that you had started at one point. Um, oh, I still have that novel and I'm going to go back to it cause it's a really great premise. It's, uh, about a confidential intermediary and all the cases that she handles, uh, for adoptees and people coming out of foster care. So it's, it's pretty along the way, but, um, two big questions came out as a, as course of writing this book was, why did you wait so long to uh, research your adoption? And um, what was it like to grow up as a twin and an adoptee? So I've started another memoir uh, that deals with both of those questions. And uh, much like the first book, my twin sister and I are the, the main characters and uh, secrets and sisterhood and all sorts of family uh, dynamics, which, as you know, our family is so entertaining. And isn't it Anne Lamott that says if, if people didn't act so badly, you wouldn't have to write about them? Um, <laughs> That's a great quote. Is, <laughs> now, is your sister, um, uh, your twin sister, w- with you in Sarasota or is she where, where does she live? Well, we just had a big birthday, so she was down here visiting, but she lives in Michigan City, Indiana. We, you know, I don't know how it works out this way, but we always end up about 10 minutes away from each other wherever we go. Um, so she lives about a mile from my my house in Indiana, and um, we have, she has two kids, I have four kids, and our brother, our sons call each other the brother from the other mother. I mean, they're really, really close. All That's the kids, nice. So. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, unfortunately, I uh, my, my twin brother, um, he had a little 17-year detour <laughs> from our family due to a, uh, a marital situation. I'll be kind and say it was not ideal. Uh, mm. And he, I have a brother like that too. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, we have him back now. I like to say that we have him back now, and we've been making up for a lot of lost time. But there was a period of time where he was he was not really involved with the family at all, and um, mm. kind of not allowed to be involved with the family. But uh, it's it's nice to have him back. I mean, he and I, funny, we were the best of friends growing up, and um, it was kind of it was a very difficult period. He actually just wrote a memoir. Um, that, that I've been helping him with um, about his time uh, in suffering with anxiety and depression and and all that stuff. But this is your story, not his. Um, what um, ha- ha- in terms of publicity, because that's another thing that comes up with with the people who who listen to this. Um, what you know, obviously, you found your way to me. Um, is it was that a, a service of your of your publisher or is that something that you, um, you know, outsourced uh, as, as well, Julie? Um, I have a publicist and she helped me find you, although I was doing a lot of podcast research on my own. Um, I like to think that my marketing background probably helps me with um, this is fun for me to, to get the book out there and figure out who's the best listeners for it. And the publicist helps a, a lot, too. And um, the pu- publicity in general is interesting because we share a lot of information in our She Writes Press group. Um, it seems like you can put a budget to it 
and uh, find the right publicist and the events and activities fall in line based on, on the price. Um, I end up doing a lot myself. Uh, I have, like, as I mentioned, I have family all over the place, a daughter in New Jersey, a daughter in DC, my son's in uh, Chicago, and um, then the daughter down here. And then lots of nieces and nephews sprinkled all over. So I'm drawing on all those people to kind of help with this grassroots effort too, uh, book clubs and um, events and bookshops. So that's fun. I love books and has been, I've been a reader since forever. My sister and I used to get on our bikes and our big outing, the only time we could cross the busy street was to go to the library. <laughs> so we were at the library all the time and then we made little side trips to the candy shop and other little places too. So um, I was really proud of my library card and big Nancy Drew fan. Um, tried not to have, you know, overdue fines because that came out of my allowance. <laughs> um, so very good. Well, let me know uh, when when is the book coming out? When is your launch date? A launch date is May 11th. So that date is right after Mother's Day. And for any listeners out there that are adopted, um, birth Mother's Day is the day before Mother's Day. So we tried to hit uh, both dates with the launch date. Very good. Now, is there a place where people can go to pre-order uh, the book right now so they don't have to wait to buy until um, uh, Mother's Day or pre-Mother's Day? Uh, the book's available wherever books are sold to pre-order. I'll give a big plug to my indie people and the bookshop.org. Anybody can uh, go on bookshop.org and their local bookseller will order the book. It's also available on Amazon and IndieBound and Target even has it. I mean, wherever books are sold. Very good. Very good. Uh, and any parting thoughts you'd like uh, the Uncorking a Story audience to know, Julie? Uh, keep writing about your story and you don't have to figure all of it out all at once. Uh, there's something magical that happens when you start putting a pen to paper or your fingers on the keyboard. Stuff comes out that you didn't even know you were thinking. And I like to think that if I take a good walk and go back to the computer, whatever was not working before is working now. So um, everybody can write a book. Everybody's got a book in them. And certainly COVID has ta taught us uh, we have more time to do things that we were procrastinating to do before. Almost the, uh, the it sounds like you're speaking to the power of free association when you're in front of that keyboard. <laughs> yeah, that's just astounding to me what uh, those little inner voices come out. Some of them are not nice, but some of them are uh, they've been trying to get out for a while. All right. Very good. Well, Julie, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. And um, best of luck with the book. Thanks. Thanks right. so much for having me on. Well, there you have it. My interview with Julie McHugh about her book, her fantastic book, Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family and Belonging. Now, that book will be available for purchase, um, available for sale on May 11th. But don't wait. You don't have to wait till then. You can buy it now. You can pre-order it. Um, you can pre-order it wherever books are sold online. We're going to recommend, though, that you pre-order it from bookshop.org. And that'll... Um, That'll help out a local bookshop in your area because every purchase from bookshop.org actually uh, gives uh, gives a little something back to uh, to local bookstops. So 
Um, how about that? Do good. Do good. Do good by buying the book and uh, do good by buying it from uh, bookshop.org. Now, if you want to learn more about me and if you want to learn uh, more about some of the other guests we've had on Uncorking a Story, you can visit uncorkingastory.com. How easy is that? Uncorkingastory.com. You can have listen to uh, interviews with other authors as well as some of my personal reflections in the open mic column, the open mic blog. So uh, there you have it, uncorkingstory.com. Um, hey, also, hey, big, big news. I've got a new book coming out. Isn't that exciting? Uh, the Ruin of Souls will be out March 16th. So set your calendars. You can pre-order that now. Um, but uh, set your calendars March 16th for The Ruin of Souls. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's a great one. I got I to gotta do a better job at selling myself. It's a great book. You're going to love it. Uh, money back guarantee. If you don't like it, my uh, high school... Uh, <laughs> Senior year English teacher will refund your money. How's that sound? So for all the uh, hardworking men and women here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening, and we'll be back with an episode early next week.